Well, I'm excited. Over the next couple of weeks, we get to walk through probably your favorite book in all of Scripture, Haggai. Right? You know right where it is. You know how to get there. You've got it on speed dial when you open your Word. That's just where you want to go. Well, if you're not even sure where it is, go to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and then go back three books. You'll get Malachi, Zechariah, then you'll get Haggai. If you get to Zephaniah, you've gone too far. All right, it's a little bitty book back there, but we're going to talk over the next couple weeks about striving, the things we strive for, the things we long for, the things we put all our energy into, because God is going to speak through this book about the efforts and the strivings of the people. See, here's the reality. This is one thing I love about this church. We believe in the full counsel of God and not simply part of it. So we run back to the Old Testament. We run to places that may not be as familiar so that we learn who God is, who his character is, and what he's about in every aspect because every word in the scripture is valuable for teaching, reproving, and encouraging. So we want to run there. So as I think about striving, I remember coming across a story a couple years ago about um, a group in China that wanted to make the biggest mall in the entire world. You ever had a, a, a desire to get in the Guinness Book of World Record? Like you flip through it looking for something you think you could get so that you could be that person, right? Like my name's just in the book. Well, they wanted to build the biggest mall, retail space-wise. So they found some farmland and they built it. And it opened in 2005. They, they accomplished their goal. They did what they sought out to do. But that's not what this mall is famous for. This mall is famous because in 2013, a bunch of documentaries started coming out about this mall because eight years after it had opened, it was still 99% vacant. Nobody was there. They had found a goal, they sought after it, they strived for it, they achieved it, and they thought they were successful only to realize that they accomplished nothing other than a giant ghost mall as it was labeled. We want to look at this idea of what we are striving after. We may be chasing things, but are those things the most valuable things we could chase? Or are they leading us to live lives that are empty and more like ghost malls rather than flourishing, thriving people of God? So let's look at Haggai. We'll get the context of the book as we go along. So let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So let's get a picture of what's going on here. God's people, and they had been in exile for, for 70 years. They'd been, they'd been kicked out of Jerusalem. They weren't allowed to go back. The temple had been destroyed. There was nothing left there. And so they had, had to live outside of Jerusalem for over 70 years. And if you just want to mark it down to go back and read it, look at Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and that gives a picture of the specific events that happened. It mentions Haggai by name. You'll get all different features of what specifically was happening in that time period. But as you read it, you'll find out that there was a, a king that came along, King Cyrus. And he issued a decree that the people of God ought to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. You guys go back, y'all rebuild it. So a remnant of the people, part of the people went back. They laid the foundation of the temple. They built an altar and began to sacrifice to the Lord and honor to him. And they were ready 
to finish this temple. And then the trouble started. Right? The, the enemies of theirs who were surrounding them that didn't want them to finish the temple began to create trouble for them and stirred things up. They began, it says, they got counselors to create difficulties. In our modern languages, they got the attorneys involved to see how long they could draw out the process. Right? So that they, they weren't able to finish. And eventually they got another king after Cyrus had died. They got another king to put an end to it. So you've got the foundation there, but they have not done anything else. And this is about 18 years later. About 18 years later, everything is left. The people are established in Jerusalem. And what the Lord has just said right here in verse 2 is the people are saying the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So what they're saying is, hey, it's not time yet. We know we need to finish his house, but we're not there yet. So let's look at what the Lord says following. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? See, in modern vernacular in our day, it would be, is it time for you to live in your shiplapped houses while my house is lying in ruin? Right, all you fixer-upper fans? Right, this idea of your, your houses are all fixed up. They're in great shape. My house is ruined. You focused on what you wanted to focus on. Here's the reality for me. When I was a kid, and even my kids do the same thing, I think every kid does this to some extent. You got all kinds of energy. You can run around all day. You can play all day. You can do just about, I mean, you used to spend hours outside, and I loved it. And then my mom would call me in and say, hey, I need you to help do some chores. You know what I'd say? Oh, mom, I'm really tired. I'm tired. I can't, I can't help with that. I'm sorry. And just like every kid says that, every parent has the right answer. What is that answer? My mom would say, oh, I'm so sorry you're so tired. We need to call your friend and tell him that he can't come over this afternoon because you're too tired. Right? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not too tired for that. I'm just too tired for this. Right? And, and my priorities were playing with my friends and, and not doing any of the chores that needed to be done at the house. Well, the reality is what the Lord has just told them is, hey, you're saying that it's not time to build my house? But you've spent all this energy over here taking care of your stuff. Your heart is not in the right place. Your priorities are off. See, when Michelle and I first got married, used to being single, I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and have my to-do list, things I needed to do, right, to get accomplished. Um, and so I'd wake up, I'd put my clothes on, lace my shoes up, grab some breakfast and start to head out the door to, to yard work or whatever else I needed to do. And she, having no idea that I had my priority list ready to go in my brain, would say, hey, can you help me with something? You just get married. So you're like, sure, absolutely. You go help. You start to go back out to your priority list again. Hey, would you mind helping me with this? Sure. And you begin to do her priority list. Right? See half of the men nodding their heads, Yes. I've accomplished her priority list. But the reality was she had no idea I had a priority list until I would get frustrated and say, I haven't accomplished anything today. She'd be like, what do you mean? We've accomplished a lot. Yeah, we have accomplished a lot, but I had a whole list of things. And the reality was what we've learned over marriage is, hey, we come together before and say, here's the things we need to get done. Let's figure out how to accomplish those together. Right, and get this done. I had to rework the way I thought 
Well, in that situation, there was not a right or a wrong priority. There were just difference of seeing different things. In this case, what the Lord is telling them is, your priorities are on what you want and not on what I say is best. Let's go on and read why. Let's go on and read what the Lord says to them next about what happens. In verse 5, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. You see that multiple times, this picture of the people striving after something. They, they put all their effort into it. They're looking for something. They're working for something. They're doing things that really are good things to do. They're working with their hands, wanting to produce something. And what the Lord tells them is, you're just chasing the wind. In fact, I am the one that's caused all those things to come to nothing. Why? Because you have left my house in ruin. See, when I felt like the Lord was leading me and calling me into ministry, there was a a season of time where I had my plans and my priorities of what I was going after. I knew what I was going to do. I knew where I was going to do it and how that was going to play out. And so the Lord began to lay it on me and, and began to pursue me to lead me toward ministry. And I said, you know what? I've got my plans. I'm going to pursue you, but I'm just going to pursue you the way I want to pursue you. And over the next six months, the best way I know how to describe it is like I felt like a hamster in a hamster wheel. I was spinning my wheels, chasing everything that I felt like I wanted to chase and felt like it was good and going to be helpful. And, and I still was going to honor God, but I was doing it the way I wanted to do it. And I was spinning and spinning and spinning and it felt like it was coming to nothing. You ever been in that place where you've worked really, really hard and you feel like you're putting your money into pockets that just have holes in them and then it's just gone? Right? The Lord is intentionally calling the people out. See, what we see here is him, them talking about the temple. We see here about them talking about building the house of the Lord. What we've got to get is the context of what's happening and the point of what he's getting to. Because in this day and age, at this point in time, in this passage, the temple, the tabernacle, that was the place where God's presence dwelt. Right? The people were called to build the tabernacle. They were called to build these things so that God's presence could be among them. Because if anybody walked into the presence of God, you know what immediately would happen? They'd die. And so they needed a place that was a visual reminder that God was with them and that they were fully dependent on God. What they're really saying when they put their priorities among their things and what they want versus building the temple of God, what they're really saying is we are dependent upon ourselves and we don't need you. See, that was the image for them 
was the temple. They made sacrifices at the temple so that they could be reminded of the brokenness of their sin. They, the priests would go into the holy place and then the high priest would go into the holy of holies to meet with God on behalf of the people. But being in that place was so holy that they would tie a rope around his ankle because he would come behind the veil and meet in the presence of God. They would tie a rope around his ankle with bells on it because if, as he was working back there, if, if he was not right before the Lord while he was in the presence of God, he would be struck dead in that moment. And guess what? Nobody else was coming in to see him. Because if they went into the Holy of Holies, they would drop dead too. So the rope was there so they could pull him out if he died before the Lord. So why is all that? This, all this was a picture to remind them and point them to something that was to come. See, those sacrifices didn't save them. Psalm 51, 16, and 17 talks about that God does not desire sacrifices. Hosea 6, verse 6 talks about God desiring mercy, not sacrifices, and a heart that acknowledges Him and not burnt offerings. And Hebrews 10, 1 through 6 talks about that no sacrifice, not one, no sacrifice of bulls or goats could ever wash away sin. So then why did they do all these things? They were reminders of their need and their dependence on God and looking forward to the coming Savior. See, in this day and age, where we're reading, they needed the temple as a reminder of the presence of God and their need for Him. But how did, he, how did the Lord do it next? He sent His Son, right? He sent His Son so that we live under a different picture. What was Jesus' name? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. We had Jesus and the reminder of the cross to remind us of our dependency and our need for Christ. And when Jesus accomplished what was needed for our sacrifice, he died on the cross, rose again, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. When he did that, what did, who did God send to remind us who God is? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a seal reminding us the presence of God, the seal reminding us of the day to come when we will be, all things will be right and we'll be in his presence. See, the, in this day, not I mean to neglect the temple was to neglect the dependence on the person of God. But in reality, they're not any different than us, are they? They had things they needed to pursue. They had families they were taking care of. They were striving after things. It wasn't that they put God at the bottom of the priority list. In reality, in most of them, I mean, when they came back and they began to build the foundation of the temple, that means that they had some priority and they began to make sacrifices again. There was some priority of the Lord in their lives. But here's what happens. The Lord becomes a priority somewhere on the list. Right? You ever found this happening in your life? Uh, I know that I'm supposed to honor God with my life, so he's number three, number four. That's pretty high on the list. And there are other things in our lives that begin to take his place. And we hold him at number three or number four, and then number one and number two get taken care of, and so he moves up a little bit, and then we pull new things up to number one or number two. And here's reality. That's a broken system. God was never intended to be on our priority list somewhere. He was never even intended to be number one on the priority list. He was intended to be the entire priority list. It's a difference. So that everything I do is under the banner of him as the priority. As a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a brother, as a son. Everything ought to be about 
Christ and the Lord as the priority over all and everything else is infused under that reality. These weren't bad people. These were busy people. You heard the old statement, if the enemy can't make you turn away from the Lord, he'll make you busy. And then the Lord gets moved down the list and we lose our dependence upon him. See, as all these things that play out, as things, the, the Lord blows it away like the wind, as they strive to, to work in the ground, and the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, all those things have come to nothing. It reminds me of a season that I've been walking through in my own life. We've got, you've heard us talk about regeneration as we as staff are walking through it. There's a, there's a time in that process where you are, we walk through an inventory an inventory of the sin in our lives, of our brokenness. Let me tell you, it's one of the greatest moments of your life. Who loves to write down all the brokenness of their own life? Right? You put it on paper. You begin to write it out. You begin to, to look at it and begin to go, man, I'm the worst person on the face of the earth. And you write these things out and you put it down. I begin to see some patterns emerge. Because I'm driven towards a definition of success. I want to succeed in everything that I do. I have a perfectionist bent. I want to do things well. I want to do things right. I want to be the best husband, father, pastor I can be. I want all these things. And as I began to write out, there was a section in there on fears. It was amazing to me the number of fears that began to come out. And the fear of failing. Fear of failing as a husband. Fear of failing as a dad. Fear of failing financially. Fear of failing as a minister. Fear of failing with my, my parents. Fear of failing with my friends. Fear of failing in all these different arenas. And I begin to see these things emerge. I'm going, Lord, why do I fear all of these things? Well, because I have a definition of success that equals perfection. And as we begin to unpack all those things and work through them, had a godly mentor that I spent time with and he began to unpack these with me and he asked me a question that hit me like a ton of bricks at that moment and probably shouldn't have, but it did. He asked me this question. He said, have you ever been successful in your eyes at anything? And I looked at him and I knew the answer clearly. I was like, no, I haven't. I've never been successful in anything I've ever done. And he looked at me and said, that's a problem. Because this reality of my definition of success was chasing all these different moving targets to try to become successful. I don't know a, a person in this room, but, but dads, husbands, can I tell you, if you're chasing after the version of success in all these other arenas, trying to maintain favor, I can tell you it's going to be like water through your hands. It's just going to drip right through. I had to change my definition of success. And that's what the people here were needing to do, change their definition of success. My definition simply had to change to, I want to live today dependent on God and seeking to grow in my relationship with Christ. If I live today dependent on the Lord and growing in my relationship with Christ, guess what? I'm going to be a better husband. If I live today dependent on the Lord and growing my relationship with Christ, guess what? I'm going to be a dad that's patient, that's kind, that's loving, that's compassionate, that's present with my kids. If I'm 
dependent on the Lord today more than I was yesterday, and I'm walking with Christ, I'll be the best pastor I can possibly be. That doesn't mean all the circumstances will come my way. That doesn't mean I'm going to become, get on any list of the top 40, under 40, right? That doesn't mean I'm going to be on any of these things. It simply means that my life will be successful and I won't be chasing things like building the world's biggest mall and ending up 99% vacant. I'll be chasing things that have value. And that's the relationship with the Lord. And every single one of us are faced with that question. What's your definition of success? What's your priorities? What are you chasing after? Is it coming to nothing? Or maybe it's coming to something, but that something isn't fulfilling. Right? As the Lord is gently calling his people back to himself in this passage. Let's look at what happens as he does that. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, Son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because their Lord, their God, had sent him and the people feared the Lord. This is unique among other books of the prophets that the people listened. Right? Rarely do the people hear the word of God and listen. Most of the time a prophet comes to them and says, this is what the Lord says. And the people respond to the prophet by saying, who are you? We're going to keep doing what we want to do. You don't speak to us like you have authority. Their pride would well up and they would reject what the prophet had told them. Only to have consequences later. Read through the Old Testament. You'll see it over and over and over again. But in this book, the people heard the word of the Lord and they responded. Like there's not a one of us in here that could not use God reminding us that he is not simply to be a priority, but he is to be the priority of everything that we do. Every single one of us need that reminder. And that's what this word does. It puts into perspective the reality that as we chase anything else, it's like chasing the wind. And they listened. And so you and I are here today reading this passage with a question in mind. Will we listen to the Lord or will we reject the word of the Lord and go on building what we're building? Dads, I can tell you, you might build a financial empire and still leave your family in the dust. As you pursue Christ, he begins to align those things in order so that you pursue him and you build things that are going to last. The great finances are great. But if they're chased after simply because there's a version of feeling like you need to provide for your family, I can tell you the best thing you can provide for your family is to walk with Jesus and your family will be provided for. Maybe financially it'll be difficult or maybe it'll be hard or whatever the case may be but your family will have the provision and the Lord will open the doors for you to continue to pursue Him and be the husband and father you're called to be. But it's freeing to know that, that what we are responsible for is depending on the Lord. And as we depend on the Lord, the results of that are up to Him, not up to me. That is a freeing place to live. Okay, so look at verse 13. After they listened, this says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. What a great reminder in this moment as the people responded to the Lord. You know what the Lord told them? I am with you. No matter what enemies come to stop you from building this temple, remember this, I am with you. No matter what the king may come to say, I am with you. The heart of the king is in my hand. Whatever you pursue, if you will follow and pursue me, know this, I am with you. That is a promise that carries throughout the word of God. So for you and me, whatever the circumstances you're in, that is a promise to claim that as we are more and more dependent on God, as we live like we are dependent on God, it's this reminder of the presence of God when he says, I am with you. The question for you today is, do you believe that that's enough? Or do you believe you need to add to it? His presence is fully enough. But we believe lies at times that we need to do things in order to complete what God wants to do in our life. What we need to do is to be dependent on Him. And as we are dependent on Him, then He will take care of the other things in our lives. We will be the godly people He's called us to be. And we'll play all the roles He's given us to play in a way that is so honoring and so fulfilling that we begin to become flourishing people, thriving people, not just hamsters on a wheel. These old books give us great clarity into the heart of God's people. And we live in that same world. Look, we're no different than them. Their circumstances were different, but their hearts were not different. They got busy just like we do. And the Lord slowly drew them back to himself. So the question for us is, will you allow the Lord to draw you back to what is right and true and good? Or will you continue to pursue what you think is right and true and good? It's encouraging that a a prophet ends on a high note, remembering the Lord's presence. Whatever you face today, the Lord is present with you. Will you respond to him as someone who knows what he's calling you to, and who trust that being and living dependently is better than striving on our own.